Am I muted? Oh, 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 here we are. How's everybody doing this morning? Good, good. Uh, the last two times I preached, I was able to come up and have a good segue about basketball because it was March Madness, and so last night I was uh, thinking, I was like, man, what am I going to talk about? There's no March Madness, but there are the NBA playoffs, so hope you're enjoying the NBA playoffs. Um, that won't be what we're uh, talking about this morning. Uh, th- this morning we're coming to a close on the book of Matthew. You know, for the past year, year and a half or so, we've been spending time uh, going through, walking through, uh, story by story, step by step, uh, through the gospel uh, of Matthew. And here we are uh, this week, uh, with, which is known as the Great Commission. Uh, we, we finish and conclude this book. Uh, and just as a disclosure, th- there's so much... Uh, that, that we can take away from the Great Commission. There's so much that we can see contextually. There's so much that we can take and apply. There's so much, even just looking back at the scope of the entire narrative of Scripture, you think about God's Abraham, uh, covenant with Abraham, with Moses, with David. All of these things are finding their fulfillment here uh, in, with Jesus, uh, his death, his burial, his resurrection. Uh, and, and so there's just a lot here. So just with a kind of disclaimer that we're not going to be able to uh, unpack uh, each of those things, but essentially, I want us to go through the Great Commission and have four things or four points uh, that I want us to take away. First, uh, I want us to see the assurance that Jesus is not the victim, but He is the victor. Uh, second, I want us to see that disciple making uh, is not a ministry of the church; rather, disciple making is the ministry uh, of the church. Uh, the third thing is that if we're going to obey the Great Commission and make disciples. Uh, this requires intentionality. And then the fourth, uh, I want to talk about how we actually go about uh, making disciples, because uh, that can be a little bit, uh, amb- it, it feels a little ambiguous, it feels a little bit uh, like, like we could use uh, some, or benefit for some, from some clarity uh, there. So with that in mind, we're going to go to the, to the Word. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, you're more than welcome to go grab one on the back. We'll be in Matthew 28, uh, 16 to 20. Um, but before uh, we read, Uh, If you'll join me as we pray. Father, I thank you for uh, this last year. I thank you for uh, the time that we've had through the Gospel of Matthew and uh, just how uh, you have changed us, how you've uh, revealed uh, to us uh, your Son in in, in a new way. And uh, I I just thank you uh, that your Spirit uh, is at work here amongst us. Lord, I pray that as we're in the Word this morning, uh, that it would be beneficial, that it would be fruitful, uh, that it would be transformative, that your Spirit... Uh, would just uh, meet us and uh, minister to us through uh, your written word. And uh, we just pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So Matthew 28, uh, 16 through 20. Uh, I think it will be up on the screen. Um, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So we're going to go and unpack uh, this a little bit. So let's, uh, if you, we're kind of going to be going back and forth and looking back at our Bible, so you may want to keep them open. Uh, let's look at verse 16, right? So this is how we begin this passage. Mind you, we're right after the resurrection. 
but it says, now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. Like I said, just a little bit of context, if you happen to recall, in Matthew 26, uh, verse 32, Jesus is, is having uh, the Last Supper with his disciples. He's sitting down with them. He's breaking, you know, the bread and the wine, uh, or breaking the bread and, and serving the wine, uh, and he's telling them, essentially, like, this is my body, this is my blood. Like, he's explaining to them what's about to happen. He's explaining to them the significance of his death, that it's about to happen, uh, and, and he begins to tell them about the resurrection as well. But when he gets done telling them about the end of the, or that he's going to be raised up, he says, when I'm raised up, you guys go ahead and go meet me in Galilee, essentially. Like, or I'll go ahead and then you come and meet me there in Galilee. And then in, verse, uh, in chapter 28, after the resurrection, you know, the two Marys are there at the tomb and the angel uh, gives direction uh, to, the or to the two Marys. They say, hey, you know, Jesus is risen. He's not here. Go and tell the guys, go meet him at the mountain in Galilee where he told you. And then so they take off, and they're on the way to go tell uh, the disciples to go meet. And then Jesus himself appears uh, to the two Marys, and I really think this is cool. Uh, the way that it reads, it indicates that he greets them gladly by name. Uh, after his resurrection, it says, and their response to, them, to him is to worship him. And so uh, Jesus, his first thing is, do not be afraid. And then once again, he says, all right. In case you hadn't got it, you need to go tell these guys to go meet me in Galilee. So this is what's happening. They go and they meet him in Galilee. Uh, and then in verse uh, 17, it says, And when they saw him, uh, they worshipped, uh, but some doubted. I don't, I don't know. Sometimes it takes stepping back from the text a little bit. You know, when we can read, it's like when we read a book of any sort, we can kind of get in it and just be reading it and not really paying attention. But, I, I mean, put yourself in, in the shoes of the disciples. Just think, you've walked with this guy for three years, uh, you've been an idiot the entire way, and he's been terribly patient with you. Uh, you, you know, you're, you're, you're following after him. You've pretty much put all of your stock in this guy, and now he goes and he dies. And I mean, as much as I, I mean, if anybody is telling me, oh yeah, I'm going to be raised from the dead, you just got to think, when you actually see the guy breathe his last breath, you've got to be thinking, man, I've lost. Like, this was a bad bet. Right? I mean, there's got to be a tremendous emotional roller coaster that these disciples are riding. And so when they hear a word that he's resurrected and that he really is in Galilee like he said he would, and they go and they see him, there are some people who are still pretty hesitant to even believe that this is really the resurrected Jesus. I really like what D.A. Carson uh, writes, so I'm just going to read it. He says, They still were hesitant, and their failure to understand his repeated predictions of his resurrection Compounded with their despair after his crucifixion, worked to maintain their hesitancy for some time before they came to full faith. Jesus' resurrection did not instantly transform men of little faith and faltering understanding into spiritual giants. But as they saw the resurrected Christ, they moved from a place of fear and unbelief to a place of faith and joy. But notice that the, time, that the, the move was they were hesitant, and it took some time. And I think as we're talking about discipleship today, that's really a good note for us, just a, a good little sidebar, that discipleship is, is about the long haul. Discipleship takes time. Discipleship takes intentionality. And, and, and a lot of times things don't happen when, when we're going out to make disciples exactly like we think it should, and we get just you know, frustrated or discouraged. But these guys were with Jesus physically, walking with him, they saw him die, and now they're seeing him resurrected, and it says some of them still doubt it. And I love what, I mean, if you, if you read another account of the gospel, you, you know about Thomas, maybe. 
uh, it's, it's really encouraging that Thomas is, the guys are all telling him, we've seen Jesus, he's resurrected. And Thomas was like, mm-mm, no, nah, he's a skeptic. This didn't really happen. And Jesus appears to him in his doubting and shows him and says, hey, put your hand right here in the holes. Put them right here. And, and he reassures him. Uh, so this is just kind of a, uh, an analogy we're going to use or work with a little bit today uh, is the difference between a microwave and a crock pot. Uh, and I'm just going to set it up. A uh, microwave, think about it, it you, you heat up a, a dinner, maybe a frozen dinner, uh, in the microwave, and it, it gets pretty hot. I mean, you can get a frozen meal pretty hot. It's not always all the way cooked, though. Sometimes, like, the outside is, like, really, really, really hot, like, burn your taste buds hot. And you get to the inside, and you're just like, how could the outside be this hot and there still be ice right in the middle of my macaroni and cheese? Um, microwaves heat stuff up fast. They don't do it thoroughly. And oftentimes it cools off very fast afterwards. A crock pot, on the other hand, requires intentionality. It requires thinking ahead of time, doing something on purpose. And when you put something in a crock pot, it's not heating up fast. I mean, sometimes I'll go put stuff in my crock pot, and it'll be like an hour later, and I'll go, and I'll be like, man, surely it's got to be getting warm, and somehow it's still a little bit cool. But once it warms up in the crock pot, it's hot, and it stays hot, and the crock pot's going to stay hot. And a lot of times we approach discipleship with this microwave mentality that, hey, we're going to go do this thing real fast. We're going to go for it. And and things fizzle out. Things get cold. Uh, But but discipleship is much more uh, like a crockpot. And I think because it is, it gives us the grace. And these disciples here have the grace in the midst of their doubting. And I love, I mean, just look at this next verse in 18. What Jesus says immediately after Matthew writes, and some were doubting. Look at it. Some worshiped, some doubted, and Jesus came to them and said, not you bunch of idiots, how could you doubt once again? But he reassures them, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I think Jesus here in 18 is doing a couple things. I think he's setting up verses 19 and 20, but first, Jesus is making it abundantly clear that he, the resurrected Lord, is not the victim, but he is the victor. I mean, there's got to be a lot of confusion, right? I mean, okay, he's resurrected. What does this mean? But we just saw him, really bad things happening. And we know that Jesus tried to explain this to them prior to his resurrection, or prior to his crucifixion. But they misunderstood. And in verse 18, Jesus is making it abundantly clear that I am not the victim, I am the victor, and I have absolute authority over all heaven and all earth. Everything in the universe is under my authority. That even when it looked bleak, even when death was upon me, even when I was being mocked and tortured and humiliated, I was still victorious. And this is going to be really crucial to what he calls his disciples to, right? I mean, if you know anything about the early church, you know that the rest of the disciples, for the most part, are going to go die. The early church is going to be terribly persecuted. There are going to be tons and tons of martyrs for the faith to the point we know some are fed to lions and, and it's watched for entertainment. This assurance to them in their doubt that he has been given all authority in heaven on earth is absolutely imperative for them to understand as they go forward and they go to obey what he's about to call them to. So this is, that's the first point. 
that Jesus, I think, is making it abundantly clear to his disciples that he is not the victim, that he is the victor. I think which gives us uh, an undeniable, or gives an undeniable weight to our call to be obedient here, and also it gives us a tremendous confidence in our obedience to what he's about to call his disciples to. So before we move to the second point, if you just look back down and you kind of see the framework of 19 and 20, or at least 19 in the first half of 20, uh, go through it. Just Sorry, we don't normally, this is kind of weird, but I mean, it's just, we'll do it. Uh, read through it where you are, and I want you to just count to yourself the number of like action verbs. Like, what, what, what are you being told to do? What is, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, and then he's going to give a command to his disciples. So look at 19, the first part of 20, and just take a look. I'll give you about 10 seconds. All right, that's enough silence. Uh, when you read uh, verses 19 and 20 uh, in the English, we, we can pull away four commands, right? Uh, there are some other verbs, kind of, uh, but really there, there are four. What we would see is like commands or directive words, like all authority has been given to me in heaven on earth, and then he's saying, do this thing. They're go, make, baptize, and teach. Now, in the English, it's indistinguishable, but in the Greek, there's actually only one of these words that carries an imperative force, which means there is one that's actually a verb, and the other three are participles or, or, or modifiers, which is kind of like how an adverb would work. I won't ask you to raise your hand. I was a teacher, uh, and tell me what you think it is. I'll just tell you. But the one imperative verb here is to make. And make is actually, make disciples in the Greek is actually just one word. It's to disciple. And our translation is just make disciples. But it means to disciple. And the word to disciple is actually the only verb, direct verb in this sentence. And this is where the weight of the, word, or weight of the command really rests. All authority has been given to me, heaven and earth. Therefore, make disciples. And the go and the baptize and the teach are modifiers to the imperative. Now, why that matters is because it can get rather confusing if we're saying, hey, what's the ministry of the church? What's the role of, the, are, are we to go? Or are we to make disciples? Or are we to baptize? Or are we to teach? I mean, it can get a little bit confusing, but uh, our second point comes from uh, Dahadi Lewis's book, Among Wolves. And Dahadi says that disciple-making is not a ministry of the church. He says it's the ministry of the church. And by church, we're not talking about, like, redemption. We're talking about both collectively, universally, the church, the body of Christ, and also our roles individually. That disciple-making is the vision that God has for his people, and that it's not a suggestion. He just finished, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Therefore, make disciples. So, I grew up in a tradition in the church that really didn't uh, emphasize uh, the Great Commission uh, all that much. Uh, as a matter of fact, I'm not even entirely sure that I heard it until I went to college. And I went to a Christian and Missionary Alliance school uh, in uh, Toccoa, Georgia, called Toccoa Falls College. Uh, and it is known for its cross-cultural missions department. Uh, that, that is its kind of like uh, spotlight or, or major emphasis. Uh, and while I was there... Uh, I, truthfully, to be honest with you, I got a little off-put by the Great Commission. Uh, I wasn't going to be a cross-cultural missionary. I was, I was studying youth ministry and Christian education and Bible and theology. And so 
I was a little off-put, and I felt a little bit slighted because everything was always about, oh, go make disciples, and everybody was, like, going all over the world, and I just felt really uh, unimportant and insignificant and felt like the, 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 really the weight of the command really wasn't applicable to me. Uh, and so the fact that there was so much emphasis on it was just kind of like, golly. But the truth is, is I really misunderstood uh, the Great Commission. I really misunderstood it. And it wasn't until after I got out of college and I started really studying the Great Commission that I saw how absolutely essential it was to us as the church. That the Great Commission, the call for us to go and make disciples, is not just for pastors, it's not just for clergy, it's not just for people who are going overseas. The call to make disciples is for all followers of Jesus. There are not Christians and then missionaries. We have all been called to make disciples. I mean, if you go back to the text, he says, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all I have commanded. And what did he just command them to do? To make disciples, right? So it falls for for, for all Christians. Every single one of us who's a follower of Christ is a sent one. Wherever we are, Whatever we're doing, we are primarily a sent one, a missionary, those called to make disciples. Now, this doesn't diminish or take away. There are those who have been called to go to different geographical places, to live amongst different cultures. But please make no mistake, if you're a Christian, you have been called to make disciples. And again, like I said, I know that it can sound like it, but it it doesn't take away at all. What, what has happened before. The, the, those who have gone and been martyred, those who have gone other to, to, to other cultures and different people. I mean, if you think about it, every one of us in this room are beneficiaries of those who have gone and who've been obedient and who the Spirit has worked through. So we owe a great thanks. And, and, and please, for us, please, I want us to be praying, God, where are you calling me to go? Where do you want me to go? Like, let's pray and ask him to send us and take the gospel out to the nations. What a joy and honor. But in the meantime, you're still a missionary called to make disciples. So the Great great Commission makes each of us missionaries. What you do every day, whether you're in med school or you practice medicine or you're a lawyer or you're a business person or you work at Redemption Church or you're a stay-at-home mom, or you're a custodian, it doesn't matter. You've been placed where you are, in your family, in your profession, in your sphere of life where you do social things to make disciples. You have been intentionally placed there by God for his work, to do his work and to do his ministry, which we see is to make disciples. And, and I think just as a side note here, it's really important for us it's, to not compare ourselves to how other people are discipling, we can think sometimes, hey, like, discipleship for me looks a lot different than it may look for somebody else. What I do if I'm coming up here and I'm preaching, it may look a lot different from somebody who's in the business world. And you may think, oh, you know, I'm not making disciples because I'm not standing up and I'm not preaching on a Sunday morning. But, but that's, that's not the case. I love... Um, I love what Jen Wilkins says, and, and before I get there, sorry, I got ahead of myself. Um, what I'm saying is it's important to, to know that how, that how discipleship, how we make disciples is going to look differently for each of us wherever we are. Um, and that there's a great temptation to compare the legitimacy of our discipleship to other people who are making disciples. 
And I think this is because we miss the word at the end of verse 20. There's a word here, and Jesus says, Behold, I am with you even until the end of the age. Here's the Jim Wilkin quote. Jim Wilkin, when she's unpacking 2 Corinthians 3.18, she says, essentially, we become whatever we're beholding. We become whatever we behold. Where our eyes and our heart are fixed is what we grow into. And it's really important as we see discipleship happening in other families or other churches here in Augusta or other churches in other places in the world or the United States or with other people that we are beholding Christ and not beholding them. Paul got it. He said, follow me only in so much as I'm following after Christ. What, I, if our eyes are fixed and our hearts are fixed, if we're beholding something other than Christ, we're actually going to grow up into something other than Christ, right? Wherever we fix our eyes is what we grow up into. I love in uh, John 21, uh, so this is after the resurrection. They're on the beach doing this fish cooking thing. Uh, and Jesus is explaining to Peter. I really, by the way, I really like Peter because Peter just is an absolute fool. Uh, and I just feel like me and him... Uh, we do a lot of the same foolish things. So I'm just thankful for Peter. I'm thankful that he's in the story and in the scripture. But Jesus is explaining to Peter how he, essentially how he's about to go and die. He's like explaining to him the way that he's going to go die. The way the text reads, it says he, he was explaining to him the way that he would go die in order to glorify God. And you know what Peter's first response is? Hey, what about that guy? Is the same thing going to happen to him? He's talking about John. I mean, Jesus says, this is how you're going to die. And his first thought is, hey, whoa, 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 what about him? And you know what Jesus says to him? I love this. He says, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. If we want to grow up into likeness, if we want to follow Jesus, if we want to be disciples who are making disciples, guys, we have to behold the Christ. We have to look at the Christ with unveiled faces, or yeah, with an, with an unveiled face, and be transformed as we behold his beauty. Not other folks. So it's important that we understand that discipleship is not a facet of or a part of the ministry of the church. Discipleship is the ministry of the church. We also have to understand that each of us, if we're a follower of Christ, has been called to be a missionary. There's not one of us who's not. And that that means wherever we are, anywhere we are, we have been there, we're there intentionally to do the work of the Lord, to make disciples. So this leads us to uh, the third point. There are only four, so we're doing pretty good. Um, this leads us to the third point. And this is that if, 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 right, we're saying, hey, we're missionaries, hey, we're called to be missionaries wherever we are, the next question for me is like, well, how? Or, or what does this require? And, and I will say that the third point is this, that the Great Commission or the call to make disciples requires intentionality. The ministry of Jesus gives us a great example of this, right? Jesus did life with other people. I think it's our, our like, leaning, maybe. Some of us get, like, real structured, uh, and we're like, hey, this is how we're going to make disciples, by reading the Bible this many times and making sure we're all at church at this many times and doing this. And then there's others who are just like, oh, yeah, I'm going to casually make disciples, you know, as I go, as though it will just, like, happen uh, on accident almost. But the ministry that Jesus does gives us a different example. Because while Jesus did life with others, he went and did life with others, every single step of the way, he was praying, 
He was planning and he pursued intentionality in the growth and the formation of those he was discipling. It was a very intentional thing. Jesus led a very intentional life. And the gospel gives us, or calls us to live lives with a gospel purpose and a gospel intentionality. Like I said, I think we can go around, whether it's conscious or unconscious, we think, hey, you know, if this person just happens to ask the right question, like they would know to ask you that right question, then, like, I'll, I'll, I'll like, try to, like, demonstrate the gospel to them through my generosity or proclaim the good news of Christ and what he's done. But I, I just, I don't think that this isn't, I, I just don't think that this is the case, because if I wake up in the morning and I have, leave myself plenty of time, and I'm like, hey, when I get home, there's going to be a warm crock pot crockpot meal waiting for me if I'm not intentional about what I'm doing in the morning and I don't set stuff in the crockpot and turn it on I can promise you if it's just me there's no crockpot meal when I get home it's like discipleship it requires some intentionality now if you're more like uh, Kelly uh, in the morning you don't necessarily leave yourself a whole lot of time I have enough time in the morning uh, I wake up, I like to leave myself a little bit of room in the morning. I like to be a little bit early uh, to things, or at least I used to be before I had a kid. Um, that kind of throws a whole wrench in everything. Uh, but, uh, it, you know, I, I leave myself enough time to get stuff done in the morning. Uh, I'll wake up and I can do some dishes in the morning. I can, like, get stuff ready for the day. I leave myself a good buffer. Right? So for me, I don't necessarily need a change of pace if I'm going to be intentional about discipleship. I just need to use my time wisely, or about making dinner in the crock pot. I just have to use my time wisely and set this stuff out. Like I said, if you're like Kelly, though, it's a little bit different. Kelly has, has this gift, and I don't know if anyone can measure the small number, like the small increments that are inside of a second. Like Kelly, Kelly has it timed to where she can hit like four snoozes. Wake up at the very last moment necessary to get up, put some breakfast together, run out the door, and clock into work literally at 7 o'clock and 59 seconds. Like, she has got it calculated to get out and get out the door and clock in like the second before it hits 7.01. <clears throat> now, if Kelly wants to make a crockpot meal in the morning... There's probably a little bit more that needs to, to change. For, for, for me in the morning, I probably just need to be intentional with the time and not just sit and waste it. I can make, make some dinner. Uh, Kelly, on the other hand, if she wants to be intentional about having a crockpot meal waiting for her when she gets home, is going to have to change her pace a little bit. <clears throat> Excuse me. I thought that, that would cover the mic. Uh, I think we can, what, I'm, what I'm trying to say is that we can spend a lot of time with people, uh, other believers even, uh, and never be intentional about speaking the gospel into each other's life. We can spend a lot of time with our family, with our husbands, our wives, our kids, our parents, and not be intentional about speaking the gospel. Or you could be moving at such a pace in life that there's not really space uh, for the relational aspects that are necessary uh, for discipleship. Because for some of us, uh, and Kelly and I, I, I'm not dogging on uh, Kelly with the example. Uh, but really, I mean, this last season, Kelly and I have found that, hey, we're moving way too fast. We're moving way too fast. And, and for us to really love people and to listen well and to really care about them and to be concerned about their discipleship, that our pace needs to slow down a little bit, which may mean that we have to cut some other things out of the picture, which means that for some of us, if we're going to change our pace uh, or we're going to become more intentional, it may mean that we have to reevaluate 
a little bit of like our purpose and our identity. It may mean that there's some overall direction or trajectory things uh, to where our lives are. We're not really beholding Christ, and we're not really going after Christ. And so we're not, it's not going to be natural for those uh, discipleship rhythms to happen. Um, and, and, if, and if that is you, I would just say, uh, I love Luke 24. Jesus breaks the bread with his disciples. Their eyes are open. He explains the scripture, scriptures to them. Their hearts are burned. Maybe that's just a prayer for you. If, if you realize that maybe, hey, my life isn't heading in a, in a direction to where I'm really going to be making disciples. I'm not really beholding the Christ. Maybe it's just a, Lord, would you just open my eyes to see you as you are? Would you open my eyes to see you and, and make my heart like burn for you? I think that's, that's a good thing uh, for, for us to do whenever we kind of can get in, in a little bit different direction. So, third point, just like planning a meal with a crock pot, uh, discipleship is going to require intentionality. So the fourth and final point is, uh, we've talked a lot around it, but how do we specifically, how do we make disciples? And, and I hope the answer catches us a little off guard because it's not a program and it's not a strategy. Let's take a look. Uh, you can look back at uh, your Bible. He says, make disciples of all nations, and he gives two things. Baptizing them in, and, I, and just as a caveat, the in is like, reads more of like into, not like in remembrance of. Like we're not baptizing in remembrance of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We're baptizing them into a new name, into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. Now, re- really, baptism... Baptizing new believers in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. This is really Jesus' way of establishing the disciples in their new identity. Uh, he, knew that if, if they, he knew that they would live differently if they realized who they were because of God's work in Christ. If you think about it, I, this isn't just a New Testament idea. Think about Abraham, uh, Abram and him, his name being changed to Abraham. Do you remember how his name was changed? And he gave him the new name, not before he had his son Isaac. Or no, not after he had his son Isaac, but he gave him the new name beforehand. He said, your name is no longer Abram. It's going to be Abraham, father of many nations, before he had his son. And this is how God works. If you go all the way back to creation, you'll see it. God declares something to be, and it is. And this is what's going on in baptism. Baptism establishes disciples are these new disciples and their new identity so then he says all right teaching them to obey all i have commanded and what has he commanded what has jesus commanded that they love the lord their god with all their heart their soul their mind their strength and love their neighbor as themselves but note what john writes in first john he says we love because he first loved us our obedience is not earning us anything. Our, our, our honoring God is not, is not, we're not conjuring our love for God up out of nothing. Our love for God and our love for others is birthed from the fact that we know that we are beloved. That we are the beloved. That we are the ones who are loved of God. So if we want to disciple others, teaching them to obey all that he's commanded, we have to teach them how the love of God motivates and drives our obedience. So often I think we preach the good news uh, and 
we preach the gospel, right? I mean, we're, we're, uh, we, we talk about being gospel-centered. We're, we're about to close, so you guys can hop back on in. Uh, you know, we, we <laughs> it's a relief. Uh, so uh, oftentimes, right, we, we're a gospel-centered church, uh, and so we're all about preaching the gospel, right? We want to preach the gospel to, to the unbeliever. Uh, and so we preach, and people become born again. They become regenerate. But once they put their faith and their trust in Jesus, then we like, okay, now we're going to change gears, and we're going to move, move into something uh, called discipleship, right? I mean, we teach them about his sufficiency, his life, his death, his resurrection, his sending of the Spirit into their lives to make them a new person. And then once they believe, then we say, now we're done with that. Now we're going to move on to the real stuff, which is you need to really get some good motivation going, get your mindset right, and really go after this thing. Get your butt in gear, and let's get to work. We evangelize and transition to discipleship, but there's really a false division. Because discipleship, or leading someone to increasingly submit all of life to the empowering presence and lordship of Jesus, is something that begins way before somebody comes to faith. It happens way before, as we're preaching to them the good news of Christ through word and deed. And Paul explains it in Colossians 2. He's writing to the church in, in Colossae that's, that's really wrestling with like adding a bunch of traditions and side things to the gospel. Uh, and he says to them, Therefore, as you received Christ, so walk in him, rooted, built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. There's not a separation. How we preach the gospel to evangelizes the same gospel that we preach to raise each other up in Christ. The gospel is all there is. There's no stage two. And so that's, that, that's really our second point, our fourth point. That'd be a mistake. You guys would be real upset with me. That's our fourth, our fourth point, that how do we make disciples? You want a program. You want a strategy. I want a program. I want a strategy. I want check boxes that I can tick off. I want things that I can do to ensure discipleship happens. But discipleship happens as we proclaim the good news of Jesus. And we live amongst people as a people who's submitting to Christ's rule and his reign. That's how we make disciples. We, we make disciples by proclaiming the good news, the gospel of Jesus his life in exchange for theirs, his death as a substitute for them, his resurrection as the power of God over Satan, sin, and self, and then his spirit sent into their lives to empower them to be a new people who walk in the power of Jesus, the same power that raised Christ from the dead. How often, you know, back... Back to this idea of us making disciples. We're called to make disciples. It's our ministry. How often do you think of yourself, hey, you know, I just don't have enough uh, training or I don't have enough experience or I don't have the skill that it takes to actually go out and make disciples. You know, discipleship is for the elite Christian, right? It's for, it's for the Christian who's got it all together. But do you hear what we just said in proclamation of the gospel to the, to the unbeliever? That his spirit gets sent into our lives to empower us to do the work that he's called us to? That means that we lack nothing. That means that we, inside of us, if we are of Christ, if we're regenerate, if we're born again, have the same spirit of God that raised Christ from the dead, alive and living in you, empowering you in obedience to the call to make disciples. Get this. Most of Jesus' followers were who? Unlearned, uneducated, lower middle class people. And he commands them, 
to go to every conceivable people group in the entire world and make and multiply disciples of a person who's physically unseen. Did you, did you, an unlearned, uneducated group of people and tells them they're the ones who are going to go and preach the gospel, take it to all conceivable people and make disciples of somebody who's not even seen. And I think, I think the key to all of this idea of discipleship is, is verse 18 and the end of 20. Because intimately woven into this command to do, to make disciples, is the promise of the authority and the presence of God. It says, and Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And then in 20, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And I know that the practical part of discipleship can be a little bit, uh, it, it can be challenging, it can be painful, uh, it can be um, long, and uh, seem like we're really sometimes getting nowhere. Uh, but really the work of discipleship, because of what we see in 18 and 20, isn't our work. It's actually his work. He's just assured us. He says, make disciples, but right before that he assures us that he has all authority and then the one who has all authority will be present with us always. So I really do want us, um, I want us to remember the, the, the promise uh, of his uh, authority uh, and of his presence with us uh, as we, we aim to be obedient. You will be glad to know uh, the sermon is essentially, there's no more points. There's one thing that I could not fit into the sermon, but I felt like it was really important if we're going to talk about discipleship. And really, my hope is that we walk away and we say, hey, am I making disciples? If I am, man, let's celebrate it. And, you know, if I'm not really intentional about discipleship, leading people to Christ, like, let's, let's move into some intentionality about discipling one another. And as we disciple one another and speak the gospel to one another, to the unevangelized places of one another's hearts, we train ourselves up to go and preach the gospel to the unevangelized places in our neighborhoods or our families or our cities. So th this, this piece I I'm just going to give you is, is really key. I think when we think about discipleship, it's really easy to think discipleship is, is big. Right? I mean, Jesus says, go make disciples of all nations. That's a very grand idea. But discipleship, the, the, the discipleship really happens on a very, very, very small level. I think we think Great Commission and we think of big platforms and, hey, I'm going to use my giftings to, to get in front of a bunch of people and sway them and convince them and lead them to Jesus and preach the gospel. And if the Lord has put you on a platform, please use that platform to, to, to preach the good news of Christ. But I can tell you, I, I don't remember the three points from the last sermon I heard. And you're probably not going to walk away and you're not going to remember the four points from today, probably because there's four of them. But what I do remember is when I'm wrestling through some stuff and Ben speaks the gospel into my life. He calls me to repent and believe the good news of Jesus. And I can tell you, I can remember whenever months ago, I'm, I'm just kind of verbally processing while Paul and I are out playing disc golf and he just stops and just asks the most pointed question. And it just stops me in my tracks. I got so mad, I didn't even answer his question until like two or three days later. But his question was pointed. He knew me. He knows Christ. And he could hear something different 
raising up in me than Christ. And he, he spoke to it. He asked me a question. When Kelly and I are having conversations, that's when discipleship is happening. I can still remember, like it's yesterday, eight years ago, I was at a church in Lincolnton as a youth pastor, and this guy who was a mentor of mine, who, who I really uh, valued, uh, we were walking out to the truck, and we were kind of bantering about theology back and forth, and he just stops me, and he says, stop, stop. I was, I, I'll give you the background. I was, I was being a little divisive about some different the, theological stuff, and I was, like, looking down on some other people for some theology, and he just, like, called me out and just, like, spoke the gospel. That's probably one of the most shaping events in my discipleship that I can recall. And that was one conversation between two people in private eight years ago. And I can tell you, Greg probably thinks nothing of the conversation. We think discipleship is this big thing, but I think it's very small. How are we discipling one another as husbands and wives, as friends in the church? How are we discipling our children? Even if you don't have children, how are you discipling the children in our church? How are we speaking in the, the gospel into one another's lives? I, I, can tell you, I can tell you this. I, and probably you can tell stories countless of how you've been shaped and affected by people on a very small level, probably much more than at an event or a conference or something like that. So the call to discipleship isn't a call to a stage. It's a call to engage one another with the good news and work of Jesus Christ. I do want to close with uh, a quote from Tim Keller. We're closing Matthew. We're finished with Matthew. This is the last sermon that will be coming out of the book of Matthew. And so it's appropriate uh, that we look uh, and close with the last statement. Jesus concludes the book of Matthew, or we see the book of Matthew concluded with Jesus' statement in the Great Commission, Behold, I am with you. Always, to the very end of the age. Tim Keller says, Jesus is promising to be the happy ending here. A happy ending to the world's history and our personal history. Christians move out into a violent world as agents of peace, into a broken world as agents of reconciliation, into a needy world as servants of the poor. We do so knowing that it is God's will to eventually end all war and all division, all poverty and all injustice. The resurrection of Christ assures us that God will redeem not just souls, but bodies, and will bring about a new heaven and a new earth. And as the risen Christ, he stands not just with us in our present time, but he waits at the end of history to heal and renew everything. This is his promise. Therefore, we will not fear. This is why we go and make disciples. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would make us a people uh, that see you clearly. Make us a people that worship you clearly. Make us a people that love you because we know that we're loved by you. Father, I pray for Redemption Church that we would um, begin some intentional uh, discipleship in our families and in our homes uh, and in our missional communities and if we haven't, DNAs and uh, but also in our workplaces, that we would begin proclaiming the good news of Jesus through word and deed uh, in our social spheres and, and wherever we're working, wherever we're spending our time. Lord, we ask that you would make our church whatever you see fit and that you would use us uh, to bring glory to your name. In Jesus' name, amen.